Hello and welcome back to Vagabond Actors. Uh, as always, I'm Brian Casp here in Prague, the Czech Republic, and we are acting teachers and we talk about the issues and the the challenges that actors might be facing and what, what to expect on the job. As always, I'm joined by Andrea Helene, who is joining us from Mallorca, Spain. Hello, Andrea. Hello, Brian. Happy to be here. As How always. are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm hanging in there, man. <laughs> Great. And joining us as always is Gary Condes coming from London. How are you, Gary? I'm fantastic. I'm also hanging in there, man. (laughs) Right. Everyone's cool, brother. And today we have a special guest joining us as well from, I think, from the Czech Republic. Uh, It's my friend and uh, AD extraordinaire, Mark Taylor. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Hey, Brian, I'm doing very well. I'm hanging in there in the hot tub, so uh, life's not too hard. (laughs) Very nice. So what we're doing today is we are going to check in with everyone and see how we've been doing over the past week, what we've had Uh, as an experience for our artistic life or our careers. And then we're going to talk with Mark about the AD department and his experience working with actors and directors and producers. And then we're going to maybe give some tips on what we've seen out in the world and uh, what we can recommend. So let's get into it. So um, let's see, Uh, Gary, what have you been doing over the past week that's interesting? Well, I have been in the trenches really sort of working and I've been doing this online course for uh, for a drama school in Helsinki the uh, Academy of Actors Academy in, in Finland and um, uh, because of the nature of it being online I've tried to make it as practical as possible um, so part of that is being setting the actors homework which they record and you know it's kind of good sort of self-tape um, practice, but giving them homework, which they have to put on tape and then upload to a, a Facebook page or a Facebook group of the, of the, of the class of the class. And so I've been, I've been sort of giving feedback on that and setting them some, some, uh, tasks, breaking mm-hmm. down a scene. And then, uh, once we've discussed that, then getting them to record and put all of that breakdown into, into practice and, 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 and put it into a speech. Um, so yeah, I've been doing that and, and, and it's, it, at first I thought, oh God, this feels like, ho- I feel like a proper school teacher here. You know, this is <laughs> stuff being, you know, there's writing involved and there's, there's, yeah, there's actual work, there's huh? actual work and it's kind of oh, feedback, yeah. but uh, having done it, it really, it, it really helps me to cl- sort of clarify a lot of the elements that I've been working with even more because um, mm-hmm. it's the first sort of online course I did, and it's I've got a it's really allowed me to hone it down and create a, a sort of online uh, structure, if you like, and and they've got so much out of it. And I think it's there's only so much we can do on Zoom in two hours when we're all together. And, you know, being remote, there there's restrictions there. But I think setting on that work so that they get to do it at home. That's Just keep going. I'll, I'll, mute, I'll mute her. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <my> dog. <laughs> um, it's not your dog? Whose dog is that? Is that yours, Mark? That's mine. It's Mark's. Mark's. Oh, okay. That's how I put myself on mute. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get a cat in there just to balance it out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. 
So what I found is it's found a, it's been a really good way of honing down um, honing down a, a, a structure and a class so that I can really get something online that is beneficial and practicable because that's what you're obviously facing is is um, the danger of it not being practical online. So yeah, yeah, I've been getting into. Um, lots of actors feedback on self tapes online, uh, for my online course. So uh, mm-hmm. that's what I've been up to this week. That's great. Uh, Andrea, is your dog uh, calmer now? Can you talk? Yeah, I can talk. He's, um, he's doing something else. I'm not sure what we'll find out later. Um, I feel like I should just cede my time to Gary as they do in politics <laughs> Because my week has been so has been really more um, personal matters have, have needed to be attended to, and um, and really the, ex- the extent of my creative work has been more reading and uh, and listening, podcasting, and um, and reflection. I would say um, I'm mm. actually going through some of our earlier podcasts again because. Gosh, you guys have so much gold to offer, truly. So I'm, I'm, I'm listening again to, to, you know, to grab more and more ideas. And as I'm, thank you, great. Well, wow, thanks very much for that, Andrea. You really are fantastic. Well, yeah, we won't charge you any more for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's super helpful, and I'm, I'm gearing up in July to, um, to participate in some, some coursework down here that a dear friend of mine is, is putting together. She's got a teacher coming and a casting director, and uh, I'll be sitting in and observing those classes. And, um, so we'll be, we'll be talking about all that soon. So I'm, I'm putting, getting my head back into the game here and it's been fun. Great. Um, uh, Mark, what have you been up to these days? Well, I have been reprepping Carnival Row, which is a TV show, which was shooting pre-COVID-19, starring uh, Orlando Bloom and Brian Casp and uh, uh, other actors involved. We've been trying to get it back up and running in the post-COVID-19 era, which is a little more difficult than uh, it it first seems. Of course, we want to keep everybody safe. At the same time, we're in a country which has pretty good results so far from the virus. But we have to still adhere to the protocols which are set in place in countries which the effects are much more severe or let's say there are a lot higher cases. Uh, So, yeah, that's been my week, essentially, trying to get that up and running, you know, working with our showrunner, uh, working with the studio uh, and just dialing in scenes, essentially, uh, as to what's the most important and how we do that, uh, keeping everybody safe. Is the consideration at all the insurance or is it really just the logistics of getting everyone here in the time when you need to because i know if you're talking about mostly getting people here from london that that could be logistically difficult it's a good question in in general uh you know most borders uh in the eu are open. The Czech Film Commission have been very helpful to work on getting people in, helping them with work visas. So from a work perspective and getting people in, it's not such a big issue. Insurance is a big thing because, as we all know, um, the idea of, you know, once a production starts, it really doesn't want to stop through illness or any form or other. Uh, Most people on a film crew are replaceable, um, and I don't mean that in a callous way. As an assistant writer, I can be replaced as um, a grip 
or a camera operator, you can be replaced. The few members that cannot be replaced or it's very difficult to replace are actors uh, and directors. But even directors can be replaced, essentially. But Actors can be replaced, too. Yes, some actors. they can. They can. But it's a little more difficult. You might have to go back and reshoot certain scenes. Um, mm-hmm. The consideration we have to think about from an insurance perspective and just a financial perspective in general is uh, I'll use Orlando Bloom as an example. Let's let's say we're filming three days and he gets sick from COVID-19. Uh, there will only be so much that we can do without our lead actor. And at that point, what we must always avoid is the closing down of a company to go into, you know, force majeure of not being able to film at that point. And it's not even like breaking a leg because you can break a leg and you can still film. You know, you're just not pacing in the scene, you're sat at a table. So that's been, you know, the major concern uh, of all companies, how to protect the crew and the cast. And now I do say that, you know, crew members are replaceable. Uh, It doesn't mean that we don't care if somebody, one of our crew gets COVID-19. Of course we care. Of course. It's about putting the protocols into place. Uh, but from an insurance perspective, it is very. Actually, the reality is you will not be insured. No production will be re- insured moving forward on COVID nineteen. Uh, mm-hmm. The insurance can. There's no chance they could cover that. I'm sure they've just taken a massive hit from every production that closed down bar three uh, right. through the whole world. So uh, there will be a clause. <laughs> I'm positive yeah. uh, for all independent features, TV shows, everything like will cover for X, Y, and Z. Pandemics will not be covered. Viral pandemics will not be covered. That's on the company's dime from this point forward. So when it's on the company's dime, of course, they want to make sure that they are covered from that perspective. Uh, So, yeah, that's sort of what uh, I've been working on this week. It's been partly creative because uh, we've had big extra scenes and things like that. So it's how you don't compromise on the drama of the scenes in which we're shooting. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, making sure that everyone's safe uh, and, you know, essentially keeping our crew numbers as low as possible. Mark, yeah. can I can I ask you? I, I met this yeah. week with some of the with the director and a couple couple crew members from Palma Pictures, and we were talking about their efforts to prepare for when production ramps up again. Here, they're doing you know some Netflix mm-hmm. productions, BBC, and um, and the Screen Actors Guild in the U.S. had just released you know, more specific documentation about how the sets are supposed to run with these zones concepts, you know, sort of the inner zone A of the actors and immediate crew members, et cetera, and who can transfer from one zone to the next and what the protocols are. Is that the same sort of approach that you all are taking? Yeah, the SAC and the DGA and IATSE have brought out Mm -hmm. uh, essentially that guidebook. Um, Each studio will, uh, of course, create their own guidebook. What will generally overrule that is uh, laws within a country. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we try and do as a production is take, you know, let's let's say we use the SAG, DGA, IATSE guidebook mm-hmm. as a rule of thumb, and that's a good starting place. And then we have to adhere to local laws. Um, uh, so in, in general, local laws will always overrule because, uh, you know, that's just the current country in which you're filming. Uh, but we try and hit that guidebook and raise the bar even more. So whether it be PPE, I actually think the zone system is a very good idea um, of how to minimize the risk um, of catching COVID-19. And, and, you know, one of the big questions is what happens if, because I'm positive of the 
umpteen productions that will get up and running in the next month or two, somebody will catch COVID-19 on those shoots or they will come to work one morning with COVID-19, whether they're asymptomatic or not. What are the protocols you have to put in place when that sound person or that, you know, uh, set PA or the catering service guy uh, comes and, you know, test positive. The SAG rule is to have a test every three days, but you can also take into consideration that's not the most healthiest of things to do either. Right now, the best form is to have a swab uh, of your nose. You know, you're swabbing away essentially microbiotics, which are there to protect your body system and immune system. So let's say you're doing a 20-day shoot to be tested 12 times, uh, won't be fun. So we're also taking into consideration that and looking at other avenues of how we can test our crew. We kind of jumped right into the to the meat of things with uh, with your current work, but mm-hmm. I wanted to maybe jump back a little bit and, yep. and just kind of introduce. So Mark and I met pretty much right after both of us got to Prague on Hellboy. And Mark was, were you the key second AD or were you the... Yeah, I was the second AD. It was me and there was Andy Howard. I think he was Andy second. Howard with second yeah, ADs. Yeah, we were and, co-second AD together. Yeah, and I was and I was um, a fresh-faced, happy-go-lucky kind of, uh, basically a, a long-term featured extra. <laughs> and, and I used to hang out in the AD trailer and we would play Frisbee on, on off days. And so Mark and I developed our relationship then in 2003 Mm-hmm. And since then, you have grown and your career has grown and you've gone off and done some really incredible projects. And I just wanted maybe you could talk a little bit about how that process went, growing from second AD, getting that kind of work, moving up to first AD. You've even uh, associate produced um, a major TV show, you know, kind of growing as a, as a producer and as, a, as an AD. Yeah, I mean, you know, all starts with a dream, right? And we, we all sort of, you know, we go to the cinema. One of the first films I ever watched in the cinema was Christopher Lambert in Tarzan, and my mom snuck me into the cinema. So we, we all start with a particular uh, desire or, you know, uh, interest within the film industry. Uh, for me, I, I left school. I was a builder. I then quickly discovered that, and you know, as you get older, you realize why you discovered things. That my brain was more orientated towards the arts uh, when I was at school. Uh, science, math, English, pretty mediocre grades. Art, history. I was always, you know, uh, A B student. Grew up in a, a very industrial town in the north of England. So, you know, it was very much expected of me just to go straight into the trades, uh, be that as a plasterer, as a builder, or a steel worker, or whatever it might be. I tried that for a year and I just didn't feel like it was my uh, calling in life. So I then went and studied fine art for two years. Whilst doing that, we did one little video project uh, and I really enjoyed it. So at the end of that, I then went to. My tutors, I asked what, you know, great video courses might be around. Um, I joined an audiovisual course the following year, which was still in college, completed that. And at the end of it, I said, hey, you know, what are the best film schools in the UK? And my tutors are like, well, you got the National in London, you got Farnham, and you got Bournemouth, but you won't get in any of those. Um, so you start looking at other film schools. And I thought, well, well, hold your horses. Why wouldn't I get <laughs> You won't get into any of Yeah. I <laughs> know. Uh, it was more just because, uh, you know, I didn't have the background, you know. Right. Uh, I hadn't studied um, 
you know, theatrical, uh, you know, studies or anything like that. I was a kid from the north of England that had an interest in making films. Uh, it was way before a lot of film courses were around. Anyway, I was lucky enough, I got interviews in Farnham and Bournemouth, and I, I got into Bournemouth. I had to specify very early what I wanted to do, so it was to produce. Mm-hmm. From pretty regular grades uh, as a kid in a regular school, uh, I left Bournemouth with distinction. Uh, and I can only really attribute it to the sense that uh, my mind worked differently uh, as a kid. And mm-hmm. only in my latter years did I actually realize that, you know, I'm just more artistic than, than I am uh, pragmatic. I'm very pragmatic as a person. Um, but what sort of gets me going and what gets me interested is, you know, uh, audiovisual, you know, be that in any form or other. Um, so I left Bournemouth, uh, very keen to produce, moved to London, uh, very quickly discovered I had to pay rent. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I was really lucky. I went home. I had an interview for a film called Fanny and Elvis, and I, I wanted to be in the production office. And I met with a lovely production coordinator called Rachel Kinnock, the daughter of Neil Kinnock, who uh, is a, a politician in the UK. Um, whilst I was doing this interview, and of course came in with my tie and my shirt and my suit, as we know we don't really wear in this industry. <laughs> and next door was the first AD. And um, so I'm really pushing to get into production. And Rachel calls, she says, look, we don't really have any places, but, you know, the AD said he might be able to take you on as a production assistant. Uh, so I, I spent two weeks, maybe three, working on Fanny and Elvis, uh, a Ray Winston film, uh, essentially locking up traffic in the Yorkshire Moors and Ilky Moor by Tat and getting generally attacked by farmers. <laughs> nice. But the, the production was <laughs> very kind. Suspicious start. Yeah, yeah, they were very kind, and it was for free. I did all that for free. Uh, they were kind enough to take me down to Elstree Studios where they finished the shoot. Uh, so that was my first introduction. Then again, Rachel, so I suppose I've got Rachel's thing for a lot of my career, our early career. Uh, Rachel introduced me to an assistant director called Adam Somner. And not long after, I was working on Gladiator as a sort of PA, third AD, uh, helping with the crowd. And then my career basically began. I met a, a very um, excellent first AD called Brian Cook. And I, I began to travel. I worked in Berlin, South Africa, Romania, Luxembourg, Iceland. And, you know, I became, over the period of three, four years, very good at my job as a third assistant director. And what does the third assistant director have to do? What is the what is the job? So you kind of mentioned some of it, but... Yeah, you know, just... the, the role of a third assistant director is to support the floor. Um, so if we're taking in rankings, you've got your first AD, he works with the director, the DOP, and the actors on set. Uh, he's responsible for making sure you finish your days. Um, he's responsible for all of the background. Um, he's responsible for liaising between the director, so let's say the artistic, and the production. So he, he, he walks a line between the two, um, but predominantly is there as a support for the director. Um, and that can be in various fashions. Mm-hmm. So that's the first AD's job. Um, then you have the second AD. His job is really to support the first AD in so many various capacities, um, be it extras, organizing fittings, making sure the cast are looked after. Uh, it, 
in general, organizing the AD team. You know, uh, if you're doing a big scene in three days' time, the second is working with the UPM to make sure he's booking enough uh, lock-off people and set PA. So, um, you know, the first AD may ask for it, but uh, the moment it's asked for, the second AD has to catch that. And he moves forward with it. Uh, The third then works on the floor with the first AD, uh, and the liaisons between the second and the first AD. This is in the sort of UK system. Um, you know, there are new facets and new sort of splinters uh, of the AD team, but that's the first, second, and third. So the third is responsible. Once the actors get to set, he or she looks after them um, and liaises with the first AD. He or she will do the background. Uh, and in general, just keep the crew informed of what's going on. Uh, and same again with production and locations and all those types of things. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point, I you know, moved away from the floor, being a third AD. And Hellboy was probably one of my first jobs, although I was on the floor on Hellboy. Uh, I had a really good relationship with Andy Howard. So Andy, you know, ran the base camp. It was a large film at the time. So it sort of uh, required a need for more than one second AD. Mm-hmm. So Andy was a key back at base. Uh, and I was on the floor feeding him with all the information and, and at the same time running the floor with the first AD and the director. Um, you know, cut to a few years later, um, I was working much more on floor. I think as a, as a person, I always much more enjoyed working on the floor. Uh, you're in the heat of the moment. Decisions made fast. If it's the creativity that you like, not that the person back in the production office isn't being creative, but the nexus of all of the departments coming together in the moment is where that a lot of that creativity goes and solving those problems that come up in the moment. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree and I'd disagree in the sense that you, you sort of touched on it. There's just as much creativity in the office uh, that can be employing the right uh, balance of people that will gel together. It can be, uh, you know, really pushing departments to excel. Um, you know, there are many facets to the production, which is a different side of things. But uh, mm-hmm. at the same time, I think, although not in the heat of the moment, the forethought of a production can be, uh, you know, the success of a production because if it's set up well, the shoot days become very simple and easy. And that's where the actors and the director get time to play. You know, so, yeah, that's how I started my career. And, you know, around 2005, I was lucky enough to start first ADing uh, on the horror movie Hostel and then Hostel 2 and, you know, my first AD career sort of began there, basically. Um, moved on to Game of Thrones, uh, various TV shows, uh, Carnival Row, Nightfall. I uh, just recently did uh, Jojo Rabbit, which was a feature with Taika Waititi. So, yeah, it's been, I like to think of it as a career where I've had the opportunity to make very high-budget films uh, and TV, but at the same time, taking that skill set and applying it to low-budget films and hopefully being able to put the money on the screen, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's sort of, in a, a very short nutshell, my career thus far. As an actor, you feel it so much when a production is well-run and when a production is not well-run. And not just to be nice to you, but the way that you run a set when you are first day ding it feels, from the standpoint of the actor, incredibly easy. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, look, that's a fine balance of experience and being cognizant of people's feelings. But I I think the base of anything which we touched on, the job which we do, uh, you know, we don't do brain surgery. We don't uh, cure cancer. uh, We don't cure world famine. But it can be extremely stressful at times. Uh, And in general, at the end of the day, when you're on any production, you're being paid. When you're being paid, uh, somebody's paying the bill. Uh, So I always, of course, feel a responsibility to whomever the finances are. But that doesn't mean that we can't lose our human touch. Um, And I think through 20-something years uh, of the job that I've done, uh, I've been fortunate enough to work with the not-so-kind people. Uh, I've been even more fortunate to work with the kind people. Um, mm-hmm. And what you realize as you sort of take your journey of life is uh, what's the most important thing? Uh, and I, I, I heard somebody say something the other day. It's not what people might say about you when the, your name comes up. It's the uh, initial feeling that they will feel when they hear your name. Hmm. Um, and that can be a feeling of dread. It can be a feeling of happiness or whichever it is. But um, getting back to your point, the the reason we're all there is to create drama. Uh, and that can be in many different formats. Um, uh, as an example, you know, some directors will want to ad lib everything which is on set. Some directors will prep months ahead and work to a shot that they have lived with for four months. Um, Others will watch a rehearsal and they'll change the plan. So we always have to be fluid. And in general, with experience comes the forethought to see the problems. There might be many different things, you know. I'll give you an example of a project that I can't speak about right now. But, um, you know, this project is extremely dialogue and performance orientated. You know, you read the pages, it's 114 pages. It's probably 200 scenes. Um, now, yeah, exactly. Jesus Christ, holy shit. How many days do we have to shoot that? Yeah. You know? And in um, 20 days. Yeah. But um, h- here's the thing. Okay, let's do the math of that. I think it's 37 days, 200 scenes. You're probably talking four to six scenes a day, depending on the complexity of the scenes. Some might be one-eighth of a page. Some might be six pages long. But the reality is, as I say very often to producers, um, it's not about the page count, uh, as you as actors will know. It's about how many scenes you do in a day. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I've shot 11 pages in a day. That's no problem. You know, uh, people are like, oh, wow, you shot 11 pages. No, it was just one scene, two guys in a room. Yeah. You know, but then again, I've shot four eighths of a page and the producer are asking me why we didn't finish our day or, you know, whatever it might be. The reality is when you do a scene, you've got to stop, you have to rehearse, you have to block, you have to mark, and then you start shooting. And that in general, even one eighth of a page might not be one shot, maybe two, three, four shots. Who knows what it is? Um, so, yeah, you just have to have the forethought to it. And this particular project I have in mind um, you know, there's a lot of dialogue. And the first thing that came to my mind was like, well, you've got to rehearse this. This is like serious rehearsal. This is not a day or two out of production. Yeah. Prior to, it's just two weeks sat in a room, you know, where you have to hone the basics of a scene. You know, let's take a scene in general. Director, two, three, five actors. 
you know, you walk in a room, you've all read the pages. Uh, the pages don't really mean anything until everybody gets a chance to work symbiotically together to create what that scene is. You know, five people can look at that scene with a different perspective. It's a director's job to hone that into one perspective, which everybody agrees on. So I, I'm a great believer in rehearsals. Um, rehearsals don't mean that the actor has to, you know, uh, break down and cry or get overly emotional, but it's about getting his or her questions answered. And you can even take that back to background extras. Uh, I take a lot of pride in that, you know, um, street scene you know especially carnival row it's a fantastical world what would people do in that fantastical world they can't just walk around the street with vegetables hanging over the shoulders everybody has to have a story um and the moment everyone has a story it works without pressure because they know what they're doing you've already talked to them you know when you say cut reset off we go or when the director says yeah roll it on let's just keep going well, cool, I'll stick in character. No problem. It's about creating an environment in which the director and the actors feel free to explore what the role is, you know, uh, yeah. and what the scene's about, the sort of context of the scene, the emotions of the scene. You know, some scenes, hey, it's just, you know, you're, you're relaying words to tell a story. That's really simple. But there are other scenes where characters might come in and say, hey, you know, I had this idea and... You know, uh, so often I, I've read script pages and an actor will come in and they come with a totally different perspective. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but man, that's better. For me, uh, a director with experience will take that on board, adapt immediately, uh, and find the best scene. And it doesn't matter whose idea it was. If it's a good idea and it works and it sells and it portrays that emotion, which uh, the director is trying to relay in that scene, well, then it's the best idea. Um, I've always found the best um, directors and actors and cameramen and ADs uh, are the people that can take people's suggestions. Um, you can throw them away. You know, ultimately... Um, uh, filmmaking is a, a slight bit of uh, dictatorship, you know? Right. Um, it needs to be one vision. But that doesn't mean to say that, you know, that person can't take uh, the suggestions of others uh, because the reality is 10 minds on one thing is far better than one. Um, in general, okay, out of those 10 suggestions, nine may not be very good, but there'll be one which is like, oh, I never thought about that. That's actually a good point. The other thing I, I quite like is, uh, you know, uh, as an actor, they will come into a scene and in general, for the reason that they're there, they're thinking more about their role than I will, than the DP will, than in some respects a director will. You know, especially in episodic television, where the director is only in for one, two, maybe three episodes. So that self-thought that comes with that is a good thing because it means they're thinking about the role. For me, I did a lot of theatre when I first sort of started out. And so, you know, the holy grail was to get to do some TV and film. But although I wanted to go on tour and be a bit of a beatnik touring around and doing all the theatre work, my first film, I mean, for me, you know, ADs, particularly first ADs, are, are sort of the unsung heroes and maybe not amongst the people who really appreciate them. But I always remember my first encounter with a first AD 
on on my first feature film, who incidentally was with Ray Winston, actually. It was a film called Five Seconds to Spare. And uh, my first feature film, not a massive part, but, you know, pretty decent. And, uh, you know, I was used to theatre and used to theatre um, rehearsals and larking about. And, and, and this first AD, the way he commanded the ship, and you were like a co-pilot, project manager, sergeant major, uh, floor manager, problem solver, fixer, sports captain, I don't know. You know, I went in there as theatre actor kind of larking about and I came out with the discipline and the respect for this, this, this juggernaut that has to happen and I'm just a small cog in it. And the person who really um, instilled that in me was the first AD. You know, all the plaudits go to maybe the lead actors and the DOP, perhaps, and then the the director, obviously. But this guy is holding—he's like the glue that holds the whole production together. And it's the difference between a, a, a nice shoot, a good shoot, a creative shoot, and it all just going to shit. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, you touch on one thing, which is the glue. Which I've always felt that we are the glue that will bring everything together, and I'm a great believer in you know without being crude, shit rolls from the top down. And, you know, uh, if we're not nice, if we're nasty, I'm always really cognizant, for instance, and Brian can attest to this, uh, you know, you're on a TV show, for instance, you may have a cast uh, list of 90 people. Of those 90, you might have 20 sort of, you know, regulars that come in and out, in and out, in and out. And then, you know, in comes a day player. He's in for one role. He's got three lines against, uh, you know, Sean Connery or whoever it might be. I always try and put myself in that person's shoes. I'd be pretty damn scared walking in, seeing me Sean Connery, uh, you know, fuck me. Hold on. What are we doing here? All right. Uh, Somebody then aggressively puts you on a spot, hit your mark, off you go. So, uh, you know, I'm very glad that, you know, one of the really positive things that has come out of of Me Too, besides the Brian Harveys of this world and, you know, obnoxious filmmakers being, you know, sentenced and and, uh, ostracized because of what they've done, and rightly so, what it's done is drawn out the bullies because there are a lot of bullies in the industry. Uh, And it's also empowered people to say, actually, that's not right. Hold on a second. You know, stop there. This is not cool. Um, So, yeah, I've always uh, been a great believer, you know, when the actor comes on set, it's like, hey, here's our DP. Here's our our director. This is a sound man. He's going to be putting mics on you. Oh, by the way, this is Susanna. She's your stand-in for today. Uh, And, you know, at that point, once niceties are over, uh, it's about focusing. And like you say, um, there's a time for play. There's a time for shoot. I, I'm really protective of giving the actors and the director a little bit of time. It's like, everyone step off. Let's give the director and the actors five minutes just to work it out because you might have questions. Uh, you know, Some directors don't like to be asked questions in front of the whole crew. Uh, we as human beings, we're all different, you know? And that yeah. might be work on the flip side. Some actors might not like being called out. Like, you know, it's much better to do it in a small audience where, the, you know, someone can feel free to respond and say, ah, oh, you know, I was thinking, yeah, this might be a crazy idea, but what if I did this? Oh, fuck me, that's great. Give it a try. Ah, it didn't work. Let's go back to what we had. You know, and that can happen in a shorter time of 10 minutes. 
That's all you yeah. need. Yeah. And then when everyone's sort of on the same page, right, in come the crew, right, boys, here's a quick rehearsal, put some marks down, boom, off you go. You know, the actors will go after makeup and hair or whatever it might be. Uh, we get time to build that, the, the, the shot, and then in you come, you're diving into your day. And, you know, actors, crew members, you know, we can spend 150, 200 days a year on set. And, you know, for me, I want to have some fun. I don't want those 200 days of 14 hours a day to be ball-breakingly painful. Uh, it just doesn't make it. Doesn't, no it's not a good formula to a good life. After, I don't know, 50 days of doing that, what kind of product would you get if it was like that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nobody would want to be there. No, no. But, uh, you know, as this is an acting-orientated uh, discussion, you know, one of the things when Brian asked me to come in, it was to sort of empower any actor, even somebody who doesn't feel like the actor, but they want to act. It's about owning that role, whatever it might be. And it's also about not being afraid of being turned down. And I think a lot of my experience, I have some good friends that are actors and they always, oh, I really wanted this role and God, I did a great self-tape and something, you know, can you pop my tape to the director or whatever it might be? And, you know, that I'm never in, really in, overly in a position to, to sort of intercede and help. But um, I think as an actor, you're exposing your inner emotions when you do a self-tape when you do anything uh, and then I can only imagine it's pretty damn hard when you don't get the role that you really wanted because it was something you're into or it might be a particular genre you really, you really want to do and you don't get the role uh, and I'll be really honest uh, seeing it from the other side I'm going to say 80% of the time your face didn't fit the picture I'll use an example. Um, Adrian Brody in The Pianist, right? Great film, wonderful cinematography, wonderful direction, wonderful acting. Can you imagine Bruce Willis in that role? Do you think he would have done the same? You know? You could have brought a gun with him, he might have. He might have been able to do it, yeah. You know, I was recently on actually a commercial, and um, the guys had cast somebody from a cell tape they brought her in for a costume fitting and the costume fitting didn't go as well as hoped and they ended up re replacing the actor uh, and I was like oh yikes that's pretty damn tough the actor got paid and everything else that still stings no it really stinks it, and I could only think like, man, and I, I wanted to give them a call and say hey you know just saying it wasn't you you know you actually got the job on your performance it was on that occasion, it was about the clothes not fitting right and not being right for the role. It was like, wow. That was one of the few things I really wanted to impress on this on this talk is that never take it to heart. Never feel like you didn't perform well on that self-tape. And then taking it to the next level, let's say, you know, you're self-taped, uh, you've got the role, you've done your fittings. It's about uh, trying not to be nervous because... The actors that have the most confidence in themselves. Now, that doesn't mean to say they're the most confident people off camera, because uh, it can be very different off camera. But it, it, so they come in and they just know. It's like they're just rolling it out. 
forgetting that everybody's there because you are exposing your inner emotions and they are raw uh, unless you can truly disconnect that emotion to acting. I suspect that's in general quite difficult. Never take it personally when you don't get that role that you really wanted to get. That role will come. And it doesn't mean, when I say your face doesn't might not fit the picture, it doesn't mean that you have to be good looking. It's not about that at all. I have many actors that I think are just amazing and work nonstop. They're character actors that come in, they just, you know, they do three days on a job and then the three days on another job. Uh, you know, I take, you know, the late Peter Pothelsway as a as a, an example. Pete Pothelsway would just roll from job to job because he had such an amazing characterful face. Uh, I've worked many times with Jason Fleming. Jason is a good looking guy, you know, but um at the same time, it's never about his looks. He can perform and he can transform into so many different roles of what it might be. I love the way that you speak about rehearsal and the value that you put on that. I feel like that's um, often underutilized. Sometimes the business side of the brain in the equation maybe uh, leads other other first ADs to organize days, uh, you know, with as minimal time as possible in rehearsal. And I loved, um, I love Sidney Lumet's book, you know, where he really, he really takes us behind the scenes during the rehearsal period. And, and I think he just, he shows what's possible to accomplish during that time with the actor and the director that just makes a much more efficient set ultimately and, and a better storytelling, you know? So I really, I really love the way you speak about the value of rehearsal. I was reading a phrase recently um, describing the first AD job as, as saying, you know, the, the first AD has to facilitate the yes on set. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, that particular, that particular place that you hold between the producer and the director and the cast and the rest of the crew and, and the things that you personally find you've spoken about kindness and respect and, and creativity and the, the just the characteristics that you feel um are most important in your work in that in that unique nexus to facilitate the when yes. you say to facilitate the yes what do you mean exactly by that by sort of saying yes to being a yes man was, or um in, in what sense that if somebody if a director wants something mm. to happen it's maybe not your place to say no, we can't do it. It's here's the yeah, compromise. Okay. We right, can do yeah. what you want to do. We won't have the time, or we can do it this way, and you'll you make the time. And uh, yeah, right. Yeah. It's your call. Um, but- in general, I'll give the example you never want to be in. You know, as an assistant director, or a director, <laughs> or uh, you know, everyone's been laxy daisy. Let's say you're shooting. You've been shooting from sunsets at eight p.m. You've been shooting all day. You've got two and a half pages to shoot. Um, and the director wants a sunset shot, okay? And everyone goes so like, oh, we're doing so well, we're doing so oh, it's going to be five minutes at that, and boom, next thing you know, you've missed a sunset. To facilitate, yes, you tee that up way beforehand, uh, and that comes back to knowledge and forethoughts and being able to, you know, I would say a large part of my job is knowing the problems and solving them before they happen. Um, and that can only come really with experience. So on many jobs, like there's a saying that all good films are made in prep, and the reality is they are. Um, every so often you can get lucky. You can make, uh, you know, 
a film that is very just ad-libbed and you know you just run around the streets and you film things but that's where people get hurt um and i've shot once or twice especially on commercials where you know uh, there is no prep the director just runs around trying to grab beautiful images of something uh, and find a, a moment a look uh, a piece of sunset or whatever it is but when you sort of bring it back to uh film and television i'll pick on two things and i'll sort of hone on the rehearsal a little bit here's why rehearsals are so important they're so important because the job of the director and the director of photography is to tell a story now that's not just dialogue that's visually and i watched the godfather when the um you know the lockdown i took my kids i'm like right kids we're going to watch the godfather trilogy right so we watched the godfather trilogy and you know the thing is a, a work of art but there was one moment when Sonny, James Khan goes apeshit about one thing. Now, through the whole movie, the camera has not pushed in on one actor. And in this precise moment, Coppola knows he wants to highlight the drama and he pushes right in. So it's a visual storytelling. And that's what we do. So when a director is rehearsing with actors, he's not purely honing the performance. He's working with the DP. He's trying to extrapolate the, the, the drama within that scene. And that might be told in many different ways. On, you know, Brian in foreground, or when Andrea says that, I need to see Andrea say that, but I also need to see Andrea's reaction, you know, or Brian's reaction to what she just said. So I, somehow I've got to get you guys in a, in a split two shot uh, where you're talking to him, he's turned around, and you see his reaction. That sort of goes back to the rehearsal part, which is so important to tell a story, especially in this day and age where the traditional wide shot, two shot, over shoulder, over shoulder, you know, as actors, you guys have probably seen that disappear more and more and more. Uh, that's because, yes. you know, camera work is getting more fluid. We're not shooting on film anymore, so you can run longer takes, you can make mistakes. You know, you'll see a lot of one takes that will run for a whole scene. You know, for sure, the Coppers and the Spielbergs of this world have been honing that skill for decades in, in order to visually tell the story because it is not a stage play. Um, I watched The Blind Side, which is an amazing film. Uh, I'll watch with my kids. I love that show. You know, the image that stuck with me from, from that film? Mm -hmm. um, it's when Sandra Bullock, uh, the kid's been staying at her house for a couple of days. Oh, my gosh, I know. Yeah, and he folded, he folded the bed sheets, you know? And it's yes. like, okay, yeah, yes. you just pulled every heartstring. And, okay, that's nothing to do with the actors. It's just a shot <laughs> of the, the bed sheets. It, it, it's a visual yes. storytelling aid in order to get your audience mm -hmm. to understand the mindset of that person, you know, that actor, that character. Yes. It's about, uh, you know, again, creating an environment. So on Jojo Rabbit, which was a really fun film to work with, it was amazing working with Taika, who is a director and an actor and a producer and many other things. Uh, but, you know, Roman, our, uh, you know, our lead actor, he never really acted before. How old is he? I think he would have been 10 or 11 at that point. Yeah. You know, uh, yes. it comes back. He really didn't know that it was an X million dollar production or what. He didn't need to know that. Part of the job of an assistant mm -hmm. director is to lift that pressure.
to lift that pressure from a director, to lift that pressure from an actor and let them play. Especially on, on that film, uh, a lot of time and thought was put to our schedule, uh, knowing that Roman, you know, although he was cast and it was a long casting process to get him, probably had a week and a half, two weeks of rehearsals. Uh, we knew he'd be nervous on day one. Who wouldn't be? You know, if we're doing Scarlett Johansson and a bunch of, you know, uh, Sam Rockwell and a bunch of other people, he knows who they are. So, you know, we were very cognizant to put scenes that were in the middle of the film at the start of the schedule. So if they were a little weaker, it didn't really matter because the audience is already encapsulated by the character and the story. There was a compromise, you know. Uh, hey, here's what we've got to compromise. Right. We can't shoot in story order. It's not going to be great for a romance because he's going to bounce around a little bit. But here's the deal. That really emotional scene, when we get that scene, even though it's scene six in the movie, let's shoot it at the end of the film mm-hmm. when he really knows what the yeah. character is now. With uh, you know really esteemed uh, and experienced actors, that wouldn't really be a consideration. Um, other logistics and financial things will come into play. You know, the base is always to try and stay as much as you can within the story because the actors, the director, the DP, everybody learns. Even the extras learn, believe it or not, because you don't mm-hmm. generally get new extras every day. You get them over a period of time, you know, like, hey, we'll use those guys six times, we fit them already, triple fit them, uh, and they'll be in X scenes. So as to, you know, uh, being the facilitating the yes, I have a rule, which is the moment I say no, you better know that I tried every avenue to get a yes. That's a great rule. Yeah, yeah. And I say that to most directors and producers. Uh, It's like, the moment I tell you no, please know that I have literally pulled arms, drawn teeth to get what that may be. So when I turn around and say, actually, it's not possible. I will know uh, whether something's feasible within a day or not. And, you know, I have been proven wrong. We were shooting with a director called Neil Marshall, who's a really talented guy, on Game of Thrones. I think it was season five or six. And, you know, in prep, Neil, you know, he's very much about shots that involve many elements, uh, which I really enjoy. And he's like, yeah, what do I want? I want to follow the owl down onto the, you know, onto the ice wall. And the owl's going to land, look left, and... That's going to cue us to, you know, pan left. I'm going to find Jon Snow walking down, you know, the corridor with bloody bars. I'm like, Neil, good luck there. Um, <laughs> yeah, but we'll give it a try. So Neil gave his remark and, uh, you know, we talk, We got the handler in. We took him two months out of it. Uh, you know, we gave him the time on the, on the set uh, without any crew, he gave us, uh, you know, the guidelines, what we needed to do when shooting with the owl. Take one, boom, owl comes, lands, pans left, we come off, where's Jon Snow? Fuck, you know, hit your mark, <laughs> you know, like, come on. He wasn't come there. On, uh, no, uh, <laughs> the no, owl's think, doing it, think, come on. You know, Kit was doing his thing, but it was just, <laughs> it was off slightly. But, you know, the, the owl did the take three <laughs> times. Like, Neil, you got it, brother, let's move on. Another occasion, he walked into Castle Black. He was on the same episode. He's like, I want Jon Snow. I'm going to look at the, you know, the lift or whatever it was. He's going to come down. He's going to battle with this guy. And then we're going to follow every moment. Somebody new is going to come into frame. 
and it's going to push the camera around into a 360. And we're going to end up on Jon Snow killing, I think his character's name was Steer or something like that. And I could see the DP, oh, God, right. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, and I was like, all right, cool. That's what you want to do. It's going to take some time, you know? Talk to the producers. Fortunately, it, it, it was a show that was extremely well uh, produced, first of all, and supported. Uh, the producers supported the creativity. But, you know, we gave that break to the stunt team. They went away for five days. They did the thing. We came in with Neil. We're like, all right, show us what you got. Great. And we walked it around. We walked it around. We spent half a day walking around. Into the night of shoot, you know, we pre-call the stunt boys in. We pre-call the camera team in. So at the moment of five, we had the camera. We were basically lit. The DP had seen it. I think we moved off the shot at 7 p.m., you know, which was probably a four-minute shot, uh, which was so intricate you wouldn't believe. But we, we moved off it in two hours. And, you know, for you guys, you know what it's like. You, one setup can be anywhere between... 30 minutes and two hours. This was one setup, but it went 360 on a 50 foot mm -hmm. technocrane yeah. uh, with 60 stunt guys, a bunch of actors, <laughs> and action extras, and prosthetics, and horses, and explosions, and arrows yeah. going in. Facilitating the yes is about pre production and knowing and lining people up and having the experience. Um, I, you, one of the interesting things I always feel in this. This could also come to actors as well. I could attribute it to actors and directors. Um, you never lose your day at 5 p.m. in the afternoon. That's never when you lose your day, you know, to not make it. You lose your day between 8 a.m. and 12 p.m. in the afternoon. Uh, and that's the moment where everyone's, oh, yeah, we got this. Oh, give me one more take. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. we, got it, we got it, we got it. Oh, just one more. Oh, yeah. Oh, the, you know, his, uh, his shirt collar's not right. Uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. and then cut to five. Fuck it, just keep rolling. Let's go. You know, yeah. That's when you've lost your day in the morning. Um, yeah. and it was is that quote really that everyone is everyone is like Fellini in no, the, in the morning? And... In the morning, and uh, no, sorry. Uh, what is it? Uh, David Lean in the morning and Dukes of Hazard in the afternoon. Right. Yeah, and it's <laughs> so true. Um. So, yeah, and, and again, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, we've got Giancarlo Rowe, I won't name the actor, but uh, we were shooting with two of our regular actors that come to work so well prepared, so well prepared. Uh, and I think it was just after the, I, I want to say it was the Oscars or the Emmys, where Tom Hanks got up and gave an amazing, uh, inspiring speech to young actors about what to do, how to be humble, and just come to work and know your lines, you know, because that's what you're there to do. You're not no more important than the person that's bringing the uh, the food to set. And I, I truly believe that. Um, and I don't really mind if that's Bruce Willis or a first time actor on the set. They're no more important than anybody else uh, from a humane perspective. But yeah, we're shooting a scene and uh, an actor that was in for a day, basically, or maybe two. He came in, he had four lines, and he couldn't remember them. And I was like, oh, this is painful. And that lasted for six hours. Now, that person uh, probably cost us maybe an hour and a half of the day. Um, so it wasn't particularly kind. His unprofessional approach to what he did actually cost us time and money and creativity because, you know, 
we then had no time to be creative because we're doing shots and we're working around somebody that really didn't know what was going on uh, and just nonchalantly brushed it off. And it was like, okay, not cool. In a scenario like that, um, how do I facilitate the yes? Um, I'm kind, I'm subtle. Uh, the moment we cut, I send him off with a PA to, you know, hey, let's run the lines a couple of times, you know, or whatever it is. So there's still no need to be aggressive, but um, as a podcast is for actors, it's come to work and really know your, your business because everybody else knows their business. And that's what we're there to do. And not knowing one's lines is like me coming to work and not knowing what we're shooting. It's the most basic It's the most thing. basic. And look, we all understand that when you've got five pages of dialogue to monologue, uh, you know, remember, that is not easy. But uh, you need to have done your homework. Don't just rock up in the morning and start reading the line. So, yeah, that's another tip that I, I wanted to pass on. And, you know, it, it's the base. Understand a lot of the time... Uh, and this can be with very experienced actors, uh, they don't know the relationship between a camera and an actor. And that's very, spatial awareness as an actor in film and television is so important. Yeah. I, I, I can't say it's always about hitting the mark because there are different approaches to that. I'm not sure which one works best. I, I really feel like you shouldn't tie an actor down to a mark and, and a time and things like that. But I suppose the key would be is understand marks and when you're working with a director because as an actor you might work with six directors in a month in tv uh the directors are you know they come in for two episodes and i don't want to say they're hired guns but um let's call it a ferrari mechanic he's a ferrari mechanic and he knows what he's there to do and he knows what nuts and what bolts to put on to get that scene made and eke the drama out of it so when, you, as an actor, you step on with that Ferrari mechanic, uh, know what you're doing. Uh, and the following week, you might be working with a film school student that really is, doesn't matter or care about marks. They're just there for the performance, and they'll figure it out on the way. Uh, or, you know, um, Bradley Cooper and a Silver Lining Playbook, I think it was called. Uh, I forget the name of the director, but the performances in that film were amazing. And I could tell, I'm like, they're not any marks. They're just, they're just doing their thing. Yeah. David O. Russell. Yeah, David O. Russell, that's right. Yeah, David O. Russell. Uh, and he, he's famous for ad-libbing things. Now, David Finch is also famous for doing 80 takes, you know? he He's probably the mark yes. guy, you know? One of the most frustrating things as an assistant director is when, uh, you know, a director that may be insecure or not know what they're trying to achieve out of a scene overshoots it and asks for performances without giving notes. Uh, and again, 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 mm. and again. Uh, and I think, you know, you guys are all professionals, you know it, but to an up-and-coming direct uh, actor, never lose your call. Uh, some people struggle to relay uh, what they're looking for and will only find it when they know they've got it. You know, they'll stumble upon it. Oh, right, that's what I was looking for. And depending on what level of cast you are, you probably won't be getting that much direction from the directors anyway. Yeah, very true. You know, it's a lot of times it's, oh, we need that to be faster or slower. 
Yeah. Depending on what you're doing in the scene. But then if, if you're not being talked to, that probably means you're doing what they need you to do. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, you know, in, in TV, I find that a lot more apparent, Brian. Yeah. You know, because, uh, you know, the director, again, the director is in and they're doing two episodes and, you know, they know that a character is in 10 episodes. So they work yeah, on the assumption that character knows their deal. Yeah. And that's who they are. <clears throat> they're not going to break the mold. But it also comes down to what you've been saying this whole talk, Mark, which is if you're coming into a professional job, and really if you're coming into any job, you really want to not underestimate how much you need to be prepared. Yeah, 100%. You know, for someone who comes in and they have two or four lines or something like that in a scene, I think it's very easy to think, oh, I'm just going to, I know it, I, I've got it. And you might know it if you're in your living room just practicing. But if you are playing a, a character that only has three or four lines, you're probably not in the habit of showing up on set and and uh, and performing day after day after day. And so you underestimate how much pressure there is in terms of the pace of things. Because as, as nice as you are, Mark, if you're not used to the pace of shooting, it can feel very fast. Yeah. yeah. Because you don't want to spend the time. This, this is not the time for training when you're on set. This is the time for making it happen. 100%. So I just, I think you've kind of covered it, Mark. So I just kind of wanted to say, are there do's and don'ts that you've seen from actors over over the years of things that you think when we come in, you mentioned it, the preparation and things like that, but, but other things uh, when we come in, what the first AD, but also the entire AD department likes to see, like one of my personal ones is, um, and this will really help out the the second second and the and the third AD, which is if you go somewhere and you're on set, tell someone, tell a PA, tell a, tell a third AD where you're going and when you're going to be back. Because part of the job of the, of the PAs and the third AD is to make sure that they don't lose any of the actors. And there are some actors who are wanderers. So that's, that's, so some tips on, on, on that level, you know, yeah, look, I think, um, look every, every, actor like every AD and like every producer and every director and cameraman the key when you go to work is you want to be you're only as good as your last job I think this industry really reflects that so I think as an actor coming into work you hit the, the you know the nail on the head you know you come in and morning what time do you pick up 745 cool I'll be there at 743 you know okay yeah. second morning to drive he'll pick you up great good morning boss how you doing be kind walk in uh, you know uh, what time do you need me to make up? Uh, hey, I need you right now. No, uh, you know, I actually, you know, it's, it's funny. I have a ritual in the morning. Uh, I like to just, uh, you know, meditate for 20 minutes before I do anything. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I didn't take that. We didn't factor that in. Um, and it's about giving a good performance. And the reality is who's going to re-employ you on a film set? Well, a director certainly is. Uh, a producer certainly is. And look, an AD will certainly be, oh, I've with that guy before. He's great. Because the reality is the people that are watching the casting tapes uh, are on production before you are as an actor, you know, uh, unless you're number one or number three on two on the call sheet. Uh, and then maybe a deal was done before the, you know, maybe you were the one that got the production made. So it's about sort of just being open 
And, you know, I've seen many times somebody that might be coming in for a few days, their creative vision may not be the same as the director's, right? So let's, let's take it like that. Uh, an actor that's coming in for two days of work uh, on a feature film, and when the director gives direction, he's like, nah, I, I, don't, I don't think that's my uh, thing. You know, I, I'd rather do this. Now, I strongly believe you should be able to exercise that conversation, you know? Uh, but when asked to do something in a particular way, give it a try, you know? I, oh, yeah, you know, I'll give it a try. It's not working. You know, uh, I, I, one actor, I won't name him, but he, he's a wonderful guy. He's a good actor. And um, every director he ever works with wants to re-employ him. And you look at his CV, and he is a multiple-hit uh, actor. He's not famous. He's generally number 15 or 16 on the call sheet. But trust me, he works 150 days a year. Because when the producers and the directors are doing a film, oh, get, get so-so on. He's, I love, I love, oh, he always comes up. He's a funny guy. Uh, oh, he's really sympathetic, you know. Whichever it is, uh, it's about just being nice and kind. And yeah, hey, I'm just a bit. I'm just a little. I'll be five minutes. You know, I'll be back. You know, do you need me for the next hour? You know, I'm just gonna put my head down. You know, I'll be in the trailer. You know, or whatever it might be. Um, uh, there are occasions where you know an actor comes in at eight o'clock in the morning. I might not be useful for o'clock in the afternoon. Um, the way I look at that is, you know, you said eight hours getting paid to read a book yeah it might have been really boring uh but at the same time you've been paid uh and that's essentially what it is uh in general a production wouldn't call you in at 8 a.m if they're not going to use you to floor but things do happen you know uh actors get sick or crew members get sick or equipment breaks uh and you might be planning to oh shush uh, i need the brian for that next shot but um now i'm not gonna need him for about four hours you know yeah don't uh that's that's the, the job though yeah and the key is not to sort of let that you know niggle you and you come on oh, now you're ready for me you know um just be there hang out uh you know if you if you've got time to chill out in the catering tent and talk to people why not you know so yeah i think it's about that and you know in general uh making other people's lives pleasant because yeah. in general uh the driver that picks you up in the morning He's probably going to drop you off that night as well. And then I'll probably go back to production and ask him if they need anything else. His hours will probably be longer than yours. You know, the director's been prepping that scene for months. The, the DP's got a vision on what it might be. Um, I, I'm a great believer in nobody really wants to hang around with an asshole. Uh, and I take that every day to my job. Uh, I, I probably have 50 occasions within a day that I could get annoyed or I could get upset because things aren't going my way. There's no way a shoot day could go my way. I never wake, wake up in the morning, you know, with breakfast made, jump in my car, it starts first time. I wander down to set, uh, you know, as I'm walking to set, you know, uh, the PA pulls me, hey, Mark, just so you know, all the actors came in early. They're all ready, you know. Yeah. And then I, I walk around the corner and the grip's like, hey, I know you talked about the dolly being ready at 8, but it's 7.30. It's ready, you know? Uh, and the DP's like, ah, the sun, the weather forecast says it's going to be overcast with no sun all day. It's perfect for what I wanted. You know, that day never happens, you know? Right. 
I get out of my car, the dolly's broke, the car's broke down that was bringing the actor. You've got to overcome that and be like, okay, yep, it's a challenge. Uh, it's, what do we do now? And in, if you're well prepped, you've always got your sort of your A, your B, and your C lines to get to. And it's like, okay, great. Well, uh, that's why we brought Brian in early. Um, let's right. bring him in. You know, oh, that's why we brought Andrea in early because we needed a backup for that day because we were exterior. It's a snow scene. Maybe we didn't get snow. And the moment you come in, hey, morning, boys. Morning. How you doing? Great. And, and you're off to a good start. And I think that's the key to, you know, film industry and probably more importantly, life. You know, just to enjoy the moment because uh, you can't fast forward through those moments. It's just to really try and appreciate the time with the people. And I think in the post-COVID-19 era, I think we, we maybe appreciate it even more when we're so used to hanging around on a film set. And, you know, four months later, five months later, we're still here, you know, locked up in our homes and apartments, uh, not having seen many of our family members. You sort of look back and you go, oh, you know, it wasn't so bad after all, actually. You know, the moment you're not loving it, don't do it. Just say, hey, you know, that was a good ride for what it was and um, move on. I think uh, we only have one life. So I know I will. The moment I don't enjoy it, life is finite. You know, it has an end. So we should enjoy as much of it as we can. That's great. It's been terrific. I'm so grateful for your insights and, um, and you're taking the time to share them with us. Is there anything that you guys have seen over the last week that you want to talk about? Uh, Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown, the mm. chef, the roaming traveling chef. I don't know. I didn't know anything about him. Um, and there's many things come out of lockdown, but one I can honestly say is I've discovered Anthony Bourdain. And um, <laughs> the great thing about it is he goes traveling around so many different countries and so many different cities and parts of the countries that it becomes more like a part food, part socio-economic, political, historical expose of that particular country or city. Um, And it's absolutely fabulous. And I'm completely glued. And it's, you know, educational as well as making you salivate over all these culinary delights. Awesome. What about you, Andrea? What (laughs) What have you seen in the last week or so? Oh, well, I have to say also I love the Anthony Bourdain series. I think they're really brilliant. Um, And his loss is great. Um... I've just been, you know, touching back with some music, some virtual orchestral music that I've been listening to, uh, thinking of Gary while I'm listening to some Finnish music, in fact, uh, some symphonic by Sibelius and things. So uh, I'm imagining you with your Finnish classes as I'm closing my eyes listening. So I'm just getting back a little bit into the music to give me some, some stabilizing energy during my week. So check out, just like Google virtual orchestras, and there's lots of great stuff. Cool. What about you, Mark? You've mentioned some uh, some things that you've been watching with your kids. Is there anything else that you've come across um, in the last little while that you want to recommend to people to check out? No, not really. I mean, I've... Uh... I watch so many things for so many different reasons. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, not, nothing jumps to mind at the moment, no. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, thank you, Mark, for joining us and for sharing your thoughts and your wisdom and your experience. Like Gary was saying, you don't often hear 
the experience of production from the AD's perspective. Um, it is, I think, the unsung glue of of the production, especially to the outside world. And so I really appreciate you coming and, and sharing your thoughts. And uh, I can't wait to see you back on set. Uh, yeah. I, I don't have that many days left. Fingers crossed. Me, Fingers crossed. Yeah, cheers, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Uh, nice to meet you and Andrea. Uh, really nice to meet you. I'm jealous, Andrea, that you're in Mallorca. <laughs> it's a lovely place to be.